Well, one of the stories that veterans like to tell me in Norman about Normandy is that there's a soldier in a foxhole, they're under fire, and someone just rolls into the fox, jumps into the foxhole on top of them, and he starts saying, who the heck are you? What are you doing, you idiot? You know, and my father said, and he said, who are you? And my father said, General Gavin. He said, well, welcome to my foxhole, sir. An excerpt from today's guest. Chloe Gavin Beatty, who's here to discuss her father, General James Gavin's World War II diary that's been released as a book. I'm Robert Child, and this is Point of the Spirit. Today's guest is the youngest daughter of legendary World War II General James Gavin, and made the decision recently to publish her father's World War II diary as a book. The book is called Gavin at War, the World War II Diary of Lieutenant General James M. Gavin, and Chloe Gavin Beatty joins us now. Chloe, welcome to the show. Thank you, Robert. Nice to be here with you. It's a real honor for us, and uh, this book is so interesting. I kind of uh, suspect, but maybe I'm incorrect, that there's a story behind the discovery of of General Gavin's diary, uh, with the family discovering it after his passing. Is there a story behind the discovery of the diary? Uh, yes. Um, it wasn't so much kept a secret as it was simply among all his papers. And I don't think he ever intended to publish it. Um, you know, he did publish a book about his wartime experiences in 1978. That was very researched and polished writing. Um, I was down in Florida after my father passed away visiting with my mom. And she was uh, said she was sending his papers to the Army War College. And I happened to see this diary among the papers. And I thought, oh, that's gonna be really interesting. So I went out to the local staples and made a copy. And then I put it in my files and it sat there for about 25 years. But, um, uh, ostensibly, the diary went to the War College, but apparently it never made it. So hmm. I realized I had the only copy of this. You sent a copy of like the photocopies to the War College, but you held on to the original. No, we, we sent all original documents. Oh, wow. And when we were thinking about publishing, I contacted them and said, do I need any permission from you? Because they have title to the papers. They said, well, we don't have that. And I was quite surprised because, you know, we didn't retain documents. I thought it was more important that they go into the public domain and be available to researchers. What was the reason to publish it now? Was there something, an urgency? Uh, yeah, several reasons. First is um, Lou Sor uh, Bob Sorley uh, sort of edited the diary, edited in the sense he broke up longer patches, passages, he wrote an index, he wrote a biographical sketch, uh, but also Colonel Keith Nightingale wrote very substantive annotations that appear on almost every page. Colonel Nightingale's airborne and Bob Sorley is not. So they brought very different perspectives. Any rate, uh, I had shared part of the diary uh, with Keith Nightingale because he was interested in where my father landed in D-Day in Normandy. And he said, you know, and I showed him eventually the entire diary. He said, you really have to publish this. And he was relentless in pushing me on that. <laughs> um, I then found Bob Sorley, who's a known historian and a West Point grad, which I thought was important. 
to work with me on this project. And the third factor was uh, that my fourth and youngest child graduated from college and I retired from full-time work. And I just began to feel like I had some time. Keith Nightingale has been on this podcast and uh, he tells an interesting, interesting story of bringing your father over to Normandy yes. and the reunion of his men. And he said it was a very emotional moment. It's a great story he told. I'm sure you know, I know that story. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so Keith has been on our podcast as well. Were there portions going through with Bob Sorley, the diary that you felt like you wanted to hold back from the public that you want to keep personal or is the majority of the diary in the book or edited, edited down into the book? Uh, there's been nothing taken out of the diary. The diary is in the book in its entirety. Um, and uh, my father actually did the job ahead of us. There are portions in the diary that are struck out. Oh. Um, and, and, and one cannot read. Um, so while I say he had no plans to publish it, he must have put some pretty hot stuff in there. <laughs> he never wanted anyone to see after the war. Were, um, were the so pages no, ripped out? Not, <laughs> yeah, they're big black, you know, marks through it. Part, parts of it. So no, yeah. we did not change anything in the diary. Wow. Were there passages? I know that uh, your father had a very a deep affection for his men. Were there passages in the diary that reflected that or, or passages that struck you uh, emotionally? Um, yeah, I mean, the, the stories that uh, reflect my, my father's relationship with his men were really primarily told to me by veterans. My father didn't sort of, you know, boast in any way about his relationship with his men, though it was quite extraordinary. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, as I read the diary, uh, I kept noticing how he was focused on training, 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 training. And I didn't really understand it in the beginning. And then as a, the division moved into combat, I began to understand um, that in his view, hard training saved men's lives. Hmm. Um, and I think his soldiers uh, appreciated that. And I began to realize he was focused, you know, on making a great fighting force, but that's because great fighters survive. And for example, he jumped with the 507 and 508 into Normandy because they were the green troops and they had never been into combat. And it is 100% typical of him that he would do that. Um, and he contrasted what they were doing when they hit the ground, which was milling around. He said, oh my God, guys, get, you know, you're going to get shot. And then he go visits a 505 at Lafayette and they've got the situation under control. Right. Um, uh, the other thing that uh, in the diary he speaks about is in the Battle of the Bulge. He was known, uh, well, he was always known to be uh, at the front, wherever it was. Um, but in the Battle of the Bulge, he was, you know, 
known to tour all the outposts every day and trudge through the snow. And, you know, in fact, the veterans told me they would remonstrate with him and say, you're getting too close. Get down, General. You, you know, go back, go back. But he wanted to know what was happening. And he also, you know, noticed what was happening for them. And I mean, he'd, you know, get hot food sent to them if they could. He'd bring them warm socks so they wouldn't get trench foot. Um, his men knew that he was always there with him. I hope you're enjoying this episode. Next time we kick off season four of this podcast in a new year with author Matthew Black, here to discuss his fascinating new book, Operation Underworld, how the mafia and the U.S. government teamed up to win World War II. The union workers were run by the mafia, and they had been schooled to play D&D, or deaf and dumb, whenever an authority figure came around asking questions. The Navy needed the mafia to help them infiltrate these areas, and um, if they didn't help, they were going to have zero chance of success. Remember to click that follow button so you'll be notified when the episode releases. Well, one of the stories that veterans like to tell me in Norman, about Normandy is that, and I heard it from numerous ones, so it may or may not be true, but they certainly all believe it, was that uh, there's a soldier in a foxhole, they're under fire, and someone just rolls into the fox, jumps into the foxhole on top of him, and he starts saying, who the heck are you? What are you doing, you idiot? You know, and <laughs> my father said, and he said, who are you? And my father said, General Gavin, he said, well, welcome to my foxhole, sir. <laughs> I can believe that. Sure. Yeah. 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 yeah, absolutely. I understand also in the diary that your father didn't hold back as far as his views on fellow commanders and skepticism out about some of the commanders, his fellow commanders he worked with. Can you share that? Yeah, I... Um looked, for example, for comments on Eisenhower and didn't find any. I know he uh, disliked General Browning, who commanded the British airborne paratroopers, because he felt like Browning was trying to empire build and take over command of operations uh, for Normandy of all airborne troops, both American and British. And uh, my father resisted that, you know, they had different sectors and certainly the 82nd didn't need another commander telling them what to do. Um, and I think there was friction also in Holland. Um, I did not get this from the book, but simply talking to my dad as I grew up, I knew that he did not hold uh, British General Montgomery in high regard. Mm. Um, Montgomery is, I think, well regarded by the British, but he and my father had absolutely antithetical approaches to their job. He complained that Montgomery was always asking for more troops, more support, more equipment, and he didn't want to move until he was sure that his set piece was ready to go. And, uh, you know, that he would come out looking well in the battle. And oh. this is about as far from my father's approach and paratroopers approach as you can get, which is you don't go in underprepared, but you take what you have and you move fast, you're nimble, you're quick, you adapt and you accomplish your mission. Uh, and so he, he, had, he didn't like Montgomery who sort of 
inflicted his style on the British Army. I have a final question coming up, but how was your relationship with your father? Was he was he uh, present in your life, and um, or was he always uh, he, traveling? Yes, he traveled a very great deal. Um, I actually think I probably had the closest relationship of all my sisters to him. Um, maybe because I was the youngest, and at that point you begin to realize that you don't take your kids quite for granted as much as you did before. Um, but I was the reader from a very, very early age, and he knew that and liked that and encouraged it. And uh, as I was, you know, girled as a teenager, he would get galley proofs of books and I'd read them when we talk about them. He showed me his correspondence with the various figures of the day and what was going on. Uh, he testified against the Vietnam War and took me to Washington when he did that. Mm. Um, you know, we played tennis together. I mean, we just enjoyed each other's company. Oh, sounds like a wonderful relationship. I was lucky. Yeah. What would you like to leave our audience with about the, the diary and, and the book and, uh, and your dad? Well, I've thought about this. Um, you know, in the diary, you understand from reading it that he was a man of incredible hard work and frankly, ambition. Um, but he, uh, you know, tried to treat people fairly and the army was his life at that point. Um, what I think many people do not appreciate was that he had a intellect and personality bigger than just being a good combat officer. Um, and the impression I'd like to leave people with is that he was a man of great moral courage. Um, he uh, turned down a four star because he would not support the army's uh, defense policies publicly before the Senate. And they said, you know, if you do this, we'll, you know, give you your four star. He said, I can't do it. I cannot support these policies in all honesty. And in the mid 60s, he uh, went to Vietnam. He came back and said publicly, we cannot win this war. This war is a big mistake. We need to leave Vietnam. And, you know, the army was furious with him and he paid a, a price for that. And the last thing is, a short story. Um, my father had African-Americans jump trained in the early 40s, which was unheard of in the army. Right. And he was not allowed to uh, integrate them into the combat troops, but they served as uh, smoke jumpers on the Pacific coast. And when he came back from the war, he, uh, it was a, unit called the 555, known sure. as the triple nickel. And mm. he integrated them into the division ahead of the army's schedule for integration because it was important to him. And I think it's sort of fitting the last person, though no, well the last person actually, and it turned out to be the last veteran who saw him in Baltimore just a day or two before his death, was a retired postman 
who had been with the triple nickel, the 555. And he lived in Baltimore and he came and he found my father in this, where he was in a nursing home and came and just came to pay his respects. And he talked about how much my father meant to him. And I thought that was very meaningful that that's who came, who was his last veteran. Speaks volumes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Because this guy had never met my dad. But, you know, 40 years later, he tracks him down and wants to see him. Because he knew what he had done for the unit. Yes. Absolutely. The book is called Gavin at War, a World War II diary of Lieutenant General James M. Gavin, edited by Louis Sorley. Chloe, thank you so much for coming on the show today. This has been wonderful. You're very welcome, Robert. Thanks for having me. That's it for this episode. Next time we kick off season four of this podcast and a new year with author Matthew Black here to discuss his fascinating new book, Operation Underworld, how the mafia and the U.S. government teamed up to win World War II. The union workers were run by the mafia and they had been schooled to play D&D or deaf and dumb whenever an authority figure came around asking questions. The Navy needed the mafia to help them infiltrate these areas and um, if they didn't help, they were gonna have zero chance of success. Another reason to click that follow button to be notified when the episode releases. And if you like what you hear, leave a review or a rating or just click the follow button. And be sure to check out our Point of the Spear YouTube channel with bonus video material plus full military history documentaries. There's tons to explore and I hope you check it out. I'm Robert Child and this has been Point of the Spirit. Music licensed from audioblocks.com. Point of the Spear is produced by RSC Media Group.